0: This is Religion Unplugged, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life and around the world. Last week, South Africa had over 7,500 cases of the coronavirus, less than 30% of the cases per person globally, and less than 5% of the cases per person compared to the United States. Senior correspondent Roberta Amundsen interviewed Neradzo Jaboran-Botsukiwa a Christian and chemist developing treatments for HIV and AIDS at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Nuretsu's experience with pandemic disease and faith in a scientific context shed light on how the experiences of HIV and AIDS, and more recently Ebola, has affected African communities and faith traditions, and how that experience might set an example for how to manage the virus.
1: Myari! Yes, I can hear you. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm so well. So good to see you again. Well, tell us a bit about your background, because it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty varied and deep and fascinating. So, mm-hmm. so tell us about that.
2: So immunology rather chose me, to be honest, I think. Because I, so, I mean, I grew up in a really, well, in a small home, I, you know, my parents had my sister and I, my father remarried and had other kids, but my grandfather was a headmaster. And he used to have these books, these science books that he would come home with, and I loved them. I mean, from the time I used to stay with them, when my mom and my dad got divorced, I mean, I loved these books. I would pour myself into them, and I loved science. So by the time I was eight years old, I had decided that I wanted to be a scientist. You know, it was clear. Yeah, I mean, it always was something that I was going to do, definitely. But I wasn't clear then, of course, on exactly what it is that I wanted to do in science. All I knew is I wanted to be a scientist. And I remember, though, I think I must have been about 10... Or 11 years old when my sister had she had this boils that she kept that kept recurring and i'd read about edward jenner and you know cow um cowpox and smallpox and i and i realized that you know this is where vaccines came from and i thought to myself hang on maybe i could cure my sister so i squeezed her boil took the pass put it in a pot. Well, I put it in a little container first, put it in a pot that had boiling water in it. I boiled the life out of it. And then after that, took it in the freezer, put it in the freezer and put it back in the pot, boiled it again. And I think about five times. And then I say to her, come here, let me put it back in you, on you. So I put it back onto her boil. And my poor little sister, you know, she's my youngest sister, loved me to bits and trusted me Totally. And she let me do it. And I think, you know, that's that's sort of maybe where my love for me immunology started. I mean, I didn't know then that's what I was doing, but you know, so I, I was always fascinated by how things work and how we can make them better, you know. Um well, did your so, sister get better. Well, you know she didn't have another boil after that i don 't know if that was because of what I did or if it was just by chance, but to this day we, we laugh about that, and we didn 't tell my aunt because with my aunt's house, and we didn 't tell her what we put in her pots because we would have been in big trouble
1: yeah, just as well just as well No, 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 yeah. no, no definitely
2: so so i've always i 've always been fascinated by science and what it can do to help human problems, so that 's my big thing I love what science can offer in the sense that how it can improve people's lives. And so health sciences were always my choice because I've seen what the impact of disease can be in people's lives. And in my case, particularly my dad's sister died from HIV Um, and she had, mm, you know, this was in the early days before ARVs were there. And this was, you know, this was, you know, in the 90s and a lot of people lost their lives to HIV. And, you know, my aunt was someone who I loved. I mean, I knew her well. She was a good friend of mine, you know. And um, she made, unfortunately in her case, a couple of bad decisions. She got it from her husband, actually, because I saw her dying. I mean, I I could see her progressing through the disease. And there was nothing that anyone could do. Mm -hmm. And then ARVs came along and changed people's lives, you know. And that was something that I knew I wanted to be part of. So, you know, I started when I when I finished my undergraduate degree, I mean, I ended up working um, you know, as a postdoctoral fellow in in the chemistry department at UCT. UCT is the University of Cape Town. So the University of Cape Town is right at the bottom of Africa, at the tippy tippy tip, right in Cape Town. And it's and fortunately for me, it's one of the leading universities in Africa. I mean, in the sense that a lot of research takes place there. And so I was quite fortunate that I was at there at the right time at the right place, and um, this incredible man Kelly Shibale had just gotten some really good funding from the medicines from malaria venture to set up um, a um, drug um, DMPK, which is drug pharmacokinetics and metabolism studies, and I happened to be at that stage. I just finished my PhD. And I was the right person. And so I set that up and it was an amazing, amazing adventure. And that's how I started working on the malaria drug that came out of Africa, which was very exciting. Wow. That's pretty recent, right? When was that exactly? The the, the development, this was in 2013, 2013. So it's, it's now in clinical trials. I haven't followed up exactly where it is currently, what stage it isn't, but it was in clinical trials. Um you know, and it had passed um, safety. So it was, it was looking good. So, I mean, you know, now with coronavirus, I'm not sure where things are at, but it was looking pretty decent. And, um, but after I left working for Kelly, um, you know, then I, when it was not time for me to start my own independent research, I mean, I went back to HIV because I knew that's what I wanted to work on independently. And so, I jumped onto H- HIV and then I had to learn a lot of immunology because HIV yeah. is all about immunology. And yes. so yeah. I, um, so that's how I ended up in immunology. So immunology chose me because I had to learn immunology yeah. in order for me to be an effective HIV um, drug um, discovery scientist. So, so, yeah. so where, where are you now? And, and
1: exactly yes. what are you doing now?
2: So I'm still at the University of Cape Town. I'm a creature of okay. habit. I haven't moved. I've just <laughs> changed, um, you know, I've just changed faculties and departments and buildings, thankfully. Yeah. So, um, so what happened was when I finished my postdoctoral fellowship, I got a fellowship as an early career fellow to set up my own research group. So I started my own small research group where I started investigating um, the target cells that HIV infects in, um, in the male genital tract. So the uh, reason why I went into this field was so that I could understand the pathobiology of HIV. If I can understand more how HIV gets into the human body, so we could design better drugs to prevent its entry. Hmm. And in my case, I decided to work on males because I mean a lot of work is being done, in, you know, on females. You know, looking at HIV transmission in the female genital tract, and my focus has been on the male genital tract. And the reason for that for me has really been that, you know, we understand women definitely bear the burden of the disease, but it is men in most cases who still transfer it. I mean, in the case of men who have sex with men, I mean, it's also other men. But for women, really, most women get infected um, from an infected partner. And we know from some sexual network data that it's, you know, one man that's infected can infect up to four women. So if we Uh can stop men from being infected, then maybe we could also protect women also, you know. So so that's sort of been my field. So that's what I've been looking at. So I've been looking at how to prevent ways of HIV acquisition in the male genital tract using small molecules, which is drugs, yeah.
1: Wow. So you're, okay, so so you're still in Cape Town and you're at the university, your research group is at the University of Cape Town. Are you a medical doctor? No, no. I'm kid. a PhD. I'm a PhD. Yes. In in what exactly? In immunology? <laughs>
2: no. So that's what the funny story is. My PhD is actually in chemical engineering. Well, um, <laughs> kind I, of I know
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> I know it's so. It's very you know. I mean, so my background has been quite you know quite diverse. But um, when I was studying my, you know, for my PhD, really, I've always looked at making biologically active compounds that can be used as drugs. So I've always had a drug discovery focus, you know. Um, So when I was doing my PhD, it was really focused on drug discovery using natural mechanisms. And then, so the natural progression was when I now moved on into drug discovery with Kelly Chibali. And then when I started my own research group, I've still been focusing on drug discovery, but in very wow. different departments and faculties.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I want to get to HIV, Ebola, and the coronavirus, actually. Mm-hmm. But first, I'd like to know, that you are a Christian, I believe. And, I, and I'd like it. to know what, what role your faith has had in this journey that you've been on to discover drugs that will help people with Pretty serious illnesses.
2: Mm. So, you know, to be honest, my faith has really been very central in all of this. And the reason for this is that I firmly believe that there are solutions that are out there. I believe that there are these diseases that are there that are not there because that is what the Lord wanted for us. So I am a Christian, as you've said. So my belief is that, you know, sicknesses and disease are not what God initially intended when he created, you know, the world and human beings. And so I also believe that there there are solutions. And I believe that God wants us to have these solutions. So it's really my belief in the fact that there are solutions that, has given me the impetus to actually go out and find solutions. So because I know they're out there, so my curiosity is like, what are they? What really is it that is there that I believe the Lord would want us to know? And so my faith really has driven me to ask those questions because I believe there are solutions. You know, you don't ask questions that you don't think there are answers to.
1: Right. Right. Well, you said that you're both working and being the homeschool teacher. So it sounds like is that a, an effect of coronavirus? Um, how, what is the effect of coronavirus in in South Africa?
2: South Africa has been. It's been very interesting. We've we you know because South Africa is a third world country. I mean, it's interesting because we have some you know first world privileges. But you know, because the you know, if coronavirus was left unchecked, the the effect would have been devastating on our population. We have a lot of people who do not have access to health. We have a lot of people who do not have um, you know. So even if even if they do get sick, we don't have like you know the number of ventilators we have, for example, is just very little. So South Africa really took a very cautious approach. So we went into total lockdown, like shutdown everything stopped. You know, our government decided to effect social distancing, which was, I think now about 30 days ago. So the first um, complete lockdown was for 21 days, which then got extended for 14 days. So as a result of that, schools were closed, businesses were closed, and everyone has been at home shut down. So it's it's been very, very interesting. Wow how widespread has the d- disease become? Mm, so funny enough, you know, as I'm, I'm sure, as you might know, Africa currently hasn't had as yeah. many cases, you
0: know. Yeah. know? So
2: we've been very fortunate in that regard, you know, that we haven't had a lot of cases and even um, our mortality rate has been very low. I mean, there are various reasons to that. You know, our population is younger. So, you know, it's, uh, susceptible to uh, people who, are, who have the, the cold morbidities are the ones who really suffer the most from it. So, and, and and also with age, the older, you know, the older people get, the more um, fatal the diseases. And so, because we have a young population, and also, to be honest, I think because we are in our summer, you know, we're now getting into a winter. So, it's not our flu season, you know, and even the spread of the virus, I think, environmentally, you know, we're having amazing, great weather, you know. So, I don't know if that's it, but I think the combination of various things things, you know, so we really have been quite fortunate in the sense that it hasn't been as bad, like our numbers have been really, really decent, but you know, you can never be too careful when it comes to people's lives, and so that's why South Africa and a lot of African countries have taken that route, because we're very familiar with infectious diseases in Africa, (laughs) we know what viruses can do to people, (laughs) you know, yeah. so, yeah. which has been a good thing, because everyone, there's been a huge buy-in from the general population, because wow. everyone has seen what viruses do, so people have stayed at home, you know, people have been able to, have done so, and people have been quite mature about it, I mean, it's, it's very difficult, I mean, a lot of sacrifices have had to be made, you know, yeah. but I think people yeah. have understood, because the cost is too high for us, so, wow. yeah. Mm.
1: How, how, how have, uh, have churches and, and religious um, institutions responded or have they been involved at all?
2: They've been very involved. I'm so proud of, you know, the different religious bodies, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I could tell you of what I know, you know, in the Christian faith, what people have been doing. So, um, you know, a lot of our, one of the effects of this lockdown has been, you know, we have a lot of people who in South Africa live, you know, hand to mouth their food comes from whatever work they do on a daily basis that's where they get their next meals from so as a result a lot of people have not had income coming to them and so you know food shortages not really a food shortage, but, you know, ex- access to food has been a problem for a lot of people just because they haven't been having an income. So the churches have really mobilized, you know, they've come together and made food packs available for people, but not only food packs, but people have been wow. contributing financially to help, you know, people who work, for example, as domestic workers who haven't been coming to work. And so right. because they right. haven't been coming to work, they haven't been paid. Um, so people have been... No money, no... Nope no ability to buy food no yeah exactly exactly so you know communities have come together to to do that and I even know even the Muslim community has been doing very similar things you know and I I suppose because it's um, the time of fasting that's coming up as well so maybe some of that is coming as part of their fasting programs you know but it's been amazing what I think um, you know the Christian community has come around doing so we haven't been allowed to meet because of the lockdown so we've been having church online which has been very very interesting. So we've been having live church from, you know, on Facebook, which has been great because, you know, now we've been able to sort of connect, you know, with um, certain speakers who in, you know, when we're meeting one-on-one, we don't get a chance to. So it's been great in that regard, but it's been also really great in the sense that, you know, like, you know, the Christian community has thought about what can we do as the hands and feet of Jesus in this current time to really Um, serve and and really people have been doing that so i'm i'm yeah so it's been it's been amazing i think churches have really come to the party which has been absolutely stunning that's exciting Mm. Well, you know
1: i mean as you as you said and and Mm. hiv hit africa Mm. particularly Mm. hard and um and and then ebola came along Um, so um what what are the and and so now i mean what you've just told me is that one effect of that is that people are quite willing to like social distance stay home do everything because they know what the consequences are Mm -hmm. um are there any other lasting effects and is hiv is do the arvs have hiv pretty
2: much under control Mm. so you know when Um, the coronavirus started when people started talking about it, you know, you know, like places like Nigeria, for example, very early on, early on in the year, whenever you, whenever you were in any public space or walking into like, for example, people were walking into banks, they had to wash their hands in front of the bank. There wasn't hand sanitizer. There was a person standing there with a jug of water and a bar of soap. Everyone who was entering banks would have to wash their hands with soap and water. And so that was in public places, you know, very early on because people understood that washing your hands is a way to prevent yourself from getting infected. People learned that from Ebola. They learned that, you know, that good hygienic practices and staying away from the vectors of diseases is the way to keep yourself safe. So, you know, when it came to now so with coronavirus so there were all these these structures that people had put in place before in order to deal with 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 ebola and to deal with even hiv so you know, even when it came to um, educating the general population, you know, people were used to, you know, community workers going out there telling people, you know, wash your hands when you sneeze, put your elbow over your, ha- your, your, your nose, you know. So, you know, those messages have been able to be sent through because of the networks and the infrastructure that was put to educate people in HIV and to educate people in Ebola. So those things have actually helped, I think, Mm-hmm. Do you think that's
1: part of why the virus hasn't had such a, a profound effect in Africa? Or is it
2: just, it could be, as you said, it's not your winter, it's, it's... It could be a factor, you know. I mean, it, I, I think it's definitely, um, I think it has helped. It has definitely helped that people are more aware of, you know, making sure that the things that carry the disease don't come in contact with you. The, because of that knowledge that was there before, it was much easier to bring in this extra knowledge to say this is what you must do, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it has helped. It definitely has helped. But it's one factor amongst so many because, I mean, yeah, there, there are many, many things that that really have come into play, to be honest. And, um, and also, I mean, we're also much later into the um, pandemic as the other um, countries in the world anyway. So... You know, I mean, I don't know what the future holds, but our numbers could increase, but you know, we're just praying and trusting God that, you know, right. things will remain as they are currently.
1: Is HIV, AIDS still a, a, a major problem? I mean, you're working on that. So uh, what, is. What,
2: what is the status
1: of that now in Africa?
2: And yeah, so unfortunately, Roberta, HIV still kills a lot of people. I mean, more people oh. are still dying from HIV currently. Um, it is rather unfortunate. It is better, definitely. ARVs have changed the, the the game significantly in the sense that a lot of people now who have access to ARVs are living, old, you know, normal lives. They can live full, long lives. Some of them are even having children, you know, um, and some of them are growing to be old women and old men, you know, even if they've contracted HIV in utero, which is amazing. So it really has helped, but it still is a huge disease for us. A lot of people are still affected by it. So, for example, we have, like now, we have a lot of children who have been born to HIV Positive moms. So, fortunately, because of ARVs, they are not infected, but we still see that their mortality is higher than children who are born to mothers who are not in ARVs who don't have HIV. So, yes, they don't have HIV. Yes, they are okay, but their health outcomes are still poorer, for example, than children who are born to mothers without it. So, it still is impacting a lot of our children and a lot of our women you know in in some of our communities have have high rates um of hiv so um for the first time recently i you know we've just found out that now the rate of increase in our adolescent girls for example has finally started coming down it was uh, which was still increasing but this is the first time that we're seeing those rates coming down now which is very encouraging but we've also starting to see it cropping up in other you know um, vulnerable communities so I mean HIV is still
1: very real. So so what you're working on now is is um the is exactly how HIV gets into the male genital tracts.
2: Um, That's correct.
1: Yeah. And what, what keeps you well, I, I think you've answered this already. It was my last question, but what keeps you going? I think I think you've answered that, but maybe you'd like to say a little more about that.
2: So I have um, a very close relative of mine who was born with HIV. And when I think about her um, and how, you know, had, had she been born a couple of years before, she would not be alive right now. So every time wow. I see her, I see what the wow. impact of science is on, on a person who I know Had she just been born at a different time or if she did not have access to those drugs, she would not be there. And so that's what keeps me going that, you know, science really can impact people's lives in meaningful ways, you know, and as long as it does that, we should endeavor in it. We should ask those questions. We should understand the mechanisms. We should find out those things that can change people's lives because it really can. It has the power to do that. The only thing I think that I could maybe add to is that um, it's absolutely incredible what happens when people believe in other people. I mean, I am where I am today because someone believed in me as a girl child being able to be a scientist. And at various stages, there were different people who came into my life and cheered me on, encouraged me and told me I could do it. And that really had such an impact on me. I mean, it was my grandfather who bought me those books and he said to me, of course, nyaradzo you can be a scientist. He was he a was headmaster, a... yes. He started off a teacher and he then at this stage, he was a headmaster. And so, I mean, wow. there were various people you know, even some of my mentors, you know, there are people who, when I came to them and I told them what my research idea was, you know, like Linda Gill Baker, for example, she, who was my mentor, she just said to me, that's a brilliant idea, you know, I believe it, I believe you can do it, and I believe you can make an impact in this. And she made a space for me to ask those questions, you know, and I found that the power of people like that has been absolutely incredible.
1: Niari, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: It's so good to see you again. It's so I good to see, see you too. Room. Yes, so please, can. let's do that. And thank you yes, for the opportunity to discuss my work with you again. Of course, oh, it's been lovely and it's good to see you, Roberta. Good to see you. Thank you so
1: much and, and, and blessings and Godspeed in all your work. Thank, thank
0: you. you. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Roberta Amundsen, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor, Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com. And is part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage, or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.